I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. This can be found on page 1012 in your pew Bible, or whatever page it's on in your personal Bible. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. This is what James writes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is with no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Just a one-minute recap of the context of where we find ourselves. If you look at the end of chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, we get the thesis statement for this letter, that James is contrasting the wisdom from above with the wisdom from below. Last Sunday evening, we looked at these verses in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, from a specific angle to see that within the heart of our hearts, we desire things, and that these conflicts, these arguments, these fights, these quarrels with every man, woman, and child comes from our own desires and passions, even though sometimes we want to blame anyone else. And these often extend into fights and quarrels on the outside. And second, the reason why we have these fights and quarrels universally, no matter where we go, no matter what time and space we find ourselves as humans, is because of the moral law of God, that he has commanded us a way to live. Do not murder. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. In this case, committing spiritual adultery, running after anything but the one true God. And so we find ourselves this morning with this recurring question, recurring question, Will I live out of the wisdom of the triune God from above, or will I persist in this natural earthly wisdom, which is really not wisdom at all. It's quite foolish because it never leads to good. I'd like to offer an analogy to the way that James presents this idea of wisdom that has been running through this book, even from the opening verses, of how one's view of wisdom shapes our lives. And it's that of a computer operating system. Whether it's Windows or Linux or some kind of iOS, it doesn't matter. The operating system is the program in the background that allows all of your other systems to run. Without the heartworking change of Jesus Christ, every human being who's ever lived has operated from the old iOS, the old operating system, the wisdom from below. And if you look in chapter 3, where it says that what does this wisdom look like? In verse 15 it says, it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
However, when anyone changes, when anyone repents, changes course and accepts the work of Jesus Christ on his or her behalf, the Holy Spirit causes us to be renewed, a complete change of an operating system, so that we now no longer live according to this earthly, unspiritual, demonic operating system, but we now have a heavenly-focused, spiritually alive, united-with-Christ operating system. That is how we are to live. This is the new reality. The trouble, though, is, as James will, as we'll look at today in James chapter 4, and as Paul says elsewhere, we still have to contend with the old nature. Paul calls it the flesh, what some older translations call the old self. Paul details this struggle in Romans 6 to 7, when he talks about how we need to put off the deeds of darkness and put on the work of Christ. And James is going to say something similar. So much so that I'd like to use that language from Paul and his letters, where he commands his readers in many of his epistles to put off this, put on this. Put off the deeds of the old operating system, put on the deeds of the new operating system. And so I'd like to look at these verses 4, 1 to 10 with that grid. First of all, we'll see that James is going to tell us to put off fighting and quarreling and to put on submission. Second, we are to put off covetous desires and cling to grace. Third, to put off pride and put on the brokenness of humility. So first, put off fighting, put on submission. Second, put off covetous desires and cling to grace. Third, put off pride and live in the brokenness of humility. So first, he talks about fighting. Look at these opening verses in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Consider these really graphic depictions and illustrations of what James uses to describe probably what he has heard about how some churches are conducting themselves. Just from verse 1, look at the words that are used, that there are quarrels, there are fights, there are wars among you, that there is murder, there is fighting, there is quarreling in verse 2. And this repetition, and if you look at it, it's interesting how they are like an inversion of themselves. Quarrels fights war, murder fights quarrels. The repetition is no accident. James is bent on us seeing the results of earthly wisdom among brothers and sisters, and it's not a pretty scene. Are these images too strong? Is he overstating the fact? Is this hyperbole? Well, what he's seeking to show, and what he's sought to show all along, is that the human heart, without actually living in the work of Jesus Christ, is bent on its own destructive course of action. Now, fortunately, by God's grace, we as humans do not give full vent to these things. We rarely see this lived out in its capacity of murder. But as we looked at last week, and we're reminded again from Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I'm not talking about just killing with your hands. If anybody has said in their heart that you hate someone so much that you wish that they weren't out there, that you wish that they were dead, you have committed murder. Or as he says, you've said, I haven't committed adultery. Well, again, if you look at someone lustfully, you have committed adultery. James reminds us that these wars, these quarrels, these fights, 
In chapter 1, the anger of human anger does not produce the righteous life that God requires. We all know what it's like, even though we have not maybe done this as much as other people, we know what it's like to have that burning anger. When we are convinced that we are right, and if I can say this, if we are convinced that God is on our side, when we burn and struggle with the fact that we have something, we want something, but we can't have it. What's interesting is that the Greek word for these passions and these desires are not necessarily wrong. Our hearts and desires are so complex that even good things, even things that are godly, even things that are right, can sometimes lead us to verbal wars and ungodly squabbling. One of the important things about these two Greek words here translated into English as passions in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and desire in, in verse 2, is that they are morally neutral in their basic meaning. So there can be a positive example of this. And I'll give you one, and this is where word studies are, are very helpful. Um, when the translators of the Hebrew Old Testament in the, in the time before Christ saw a need that Hebrew was kind of dying out and they needed to translate the Bible into the lingua franca, the language of the day, of Greek, there came about the Septuagint. And in Numbers chapter 11, verse 8, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, takes this picture of where people are gathering manna, and you can always ask somebody, what, what is it? It's manna, because that's what it means. What is it? Manna. They, hadn't, they, had, they didn't know what it was. They so didn't know what it was that it says when they tasted it, they used this same word for it was passionate or pleasurable when they ate the manna. Thus, sometimes we can have fights about good things, even in the church. Let me give you another illustration of how sometimes even good things can be in conflict with each other. And I used this last Sunday evening, and I'll use it again. I warned people. Last week, we were having a phone call with a, uh, with a friend of ours, and this mother was taking her five-year-old daughter to an amusement park. And we had not been able to connect over the last couple months. We finally were able to connect, and so we were on speakerphone, and they were on speakerphone. And the mom, in, in the interest of safety, said, oh, I'm going to pull over. Well, she pulled over right next to the amusement park, in sight of it. You can imagine what that five-year-old was thinking. We heard comments like, Mommy, Mommy, why are we stopped here? This child could see the amusement park. That desire was to go there. That's not evil. That's not wrong. The desire of the mom was to have this conversation that we were trying to have for a, quite a while. Now, of course, being, being smart and wise about these things, we cut the conversation short because the daughter kept going, Mommy, 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 Mommy. You can see how these two good things, not evil, we're eventually coming to a head and causing conflict. So if those are examples of the positive ways or even good things, our passions and desires are not necessarily evil all the time. We need to look at the broader view of Scripture, though, is that the negative part of this is this, is that passion and desire in the New Testament, and in fact in the Old Testament as well, is almost always viewed through our fallen state and our need to be delivered. I mentioned before that word from Numbers 11.8 that is used. 
It's actually the word hedone, which, which we get the word hedonism, the love of pleasure and passion, which is almost an alliteration of the Greek word for passion here, and it also became known as the goddess of pleasure and delight. So with our, with our operating system, the old operating system, these desires are often tainted and destructive because we desire what we want. And so the question is this, is James overstating this? Is he overstating the reality of the human heart? Well, no, because these verses stand in consistent lineage with the whole of Scripture. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Other parts of the Bible state that our hearts are not only sick, but they are dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead to spiritual things. Now, I don't know if this is a comfort to you, but it is to me because it reveals a hope outside of myself. I am unable to do it. Back to the operating system analogy, and I'm sure it breaks down at some point. But if you've ever had updates to your computer, and you can tell that I've had many struggles with computers, I cannot tell you how many sermons I have lost the night before a sermon. Fortunately, not today. That didn't happen this time. Other things happened, but not that. Uh, There's a remnant of those operating systems. So even though you upgrade it, they sometimes leave these other patches, these other remnants. Well, what the Holy Spirit does is he comes in when we submit to the Holy Spirit to live by this heavenly wisdom. The the Word of God and the Holy Spirit target target these stubborn, residual areas of my heart and of my desires. Now, it's crucial to remind ourselves that James is addressing Christians. Now, let's be honest. Fights, quarrels, wars, arguments. Have you ever witnessed these fights and division in a church? Not 10th, of course. Um, Have you not ever seen these happen in a church? What's surprising, actually, is that we are surprised when these quarrels do happen in a church. It's as if as good Presbyterians we believe in total depravity. It's totally for somebody else. Of course, James is not talking about the needy spiritual people out there, outside of these walls. James is talking about us, those who profess Christ. And he's asking if our speech and our actions and our thoughts are flowing from this new spiritual reality, or are we still operating under the old, inadequate, broken wisdom of this world as we interact with each other in the church? Consider how he has addressed other issues for these Christians who are indeed saved, but have not combined it with living it out in their life, he has had to challenge those who have doubted God's goodness. He's had to remind them that God does not tempt them, and comes the full verse here in James chapter 4, that it's actually us that is the problem. God does not change like shifting shadows. They have made distinctions between others in their congregation based on external appearances, and he says, stop it, that is not right. They have been challenged to have their speech match their profession of faith, even to the point of saying, you are having wars and arguments among you. Look also in in chapter 4, verse 2, of what else is going on, that they are not trusting in God. Verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He would go on to say, you adulterous people, you're trying to live in both operating systems. You're trying to live in both ways of wisdom, of demanding that God do things in your timetable, in your way, and of course, do this for the glory of God. He says, you cannot have that. Now again, he's already addressed the fact that they should ask, and it should be without doubting. Now he addresses one of the issues of the heart that we all struggle with in prayer. What he gives here is the shorthand of why many of us don't pray, because we don't believe it's effective. You don't pray. How much do we pray? And when we do pray, what he challenges us with is sometimes we are asking that God do things for us. We treat God like he's a genie or a vending machine. Give me this so I can have this, so I can do this for you. So what's the solution to this? What's the solution that, to asking for prayer so that I can spend it on my own pleasures and my own passion? What's the solution to these fights and these quarrels in the church? Well, it's not cynicism. It's not despair. It's not giving up. It's one of the most hated words of human wisdom, and that is to submit. And if you think submit is a fun word and something you like to do, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. But look at what James says. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So how many of us like the word submit? When it is viewed through earthly wisdom, it is harsh, unloving, and even hateful. But what does the wisdom from above say? The wisdom above says that all of life, whether it's our everyday living or our prayer life, every moment of every day, we as Christians are to submit to God. Think about it this way. When do wars and conflicts end? It's when one side admits it has had enough and surrenders and quits and submits. Now, I know that there are a variety of struggles within this room, various desires, some good and noble and godly, some that are more in line with temptation than that we live by. But for all of these desires in the church this morning, will you again this morning submit yourself to God's purposes and his way? Will you ask God to work not to consume them on your passions, not so that I can look better, but for God's glory alone? Hebrews chapter 13, just a few few pages earlier in our Bibles, says this. It says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Those who have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us. Pray for us. Not that we will be successful, not that we will have great numbers. Pray for us that we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. This is the way of submission. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped because he is God, humbled himself. He humbly submitted himself to his Father, to death on the cross. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus wrestling with this idea of submission, of praying, not my will be done, but your will be done. If there's any other way that this cup that we will celebrate this morning, if there's any way that this cup of wrath can pass from me, but not my will be done, but yours be done. See, prayer is not a matter of changing God's mind and getting what we want so we can spend it on our passions. It is so that we can have our wills aligned with God's purposes and his desires for his church and for this world. Because sometimes even good passions and desires, deeply held passions, need to be brought more in line with his will. Even this morning we prayed, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth, here on earth, as you are reigning and doing your will in heaven. And as we prayed together in the Apostles' Creed, one of the important things, and you can kind of gloss over it, is that there is the forgiveness of sins. We need to be reminded of that as we are tempted to have those fights and quarrels with each other. So the first put off and put on that James is introducing is this idea of put off this fighting, put on submission because of what Christ has done for his people. The second theme that James brings out here to the Christians that he's writing to is to put off covetous desires and to cling to grace. See, the Christian life begins, continues, and ends with submission to the triune God. What this submission means is I need to give up these desires, these passions, this inner turmoil to my heavenly Father. It's amazing how 1 Peter chapter 5 parallels James chapter 4 in so many ways. This is how Peter calls us to put this on to cling to grace. He says, cast all your cares and anxiety upon him because he cares for you. But let's be honest, it's so hard to die to my covetous desires, my passions, but it's the only way of spiritual life. What does James command us to do? commands us to put off these desires, and he says this in verse 4 in this summary statement. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we continue to try to live out of the earthly, original operating system that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, we cannot live the righteous life that God requires. It leads only to strife. This is how John states it in his letter. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not with him. See, I would argue that just as the word submit is seen by some who advocate earthly from below wisdom is a terrible, offensive word, so is the idea of self-denial. Worldly wisdom will tell us that rather than fight these desires, Rather than submit to God, rather than fight the passions that rage within us, we should give in and just live them out. Live however we want. Live by our feelings. You can define your own reality. You can make your own rules. Well, this worldly wisdom will succeed until the created laws of God's created universe inevitably give us a spiritual reality check that we indeed cannot live however we want. One may deny the existence of gravity as he jumps off a cliff, but this denial will not negate the tragic consequences. Scripture gives us a very different view of living our lives, that as we resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
Scripture is filled with so many examples that this is the way of life is to die to ourselves. Think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, how he could have committed adultery with her, but he said, I cannot do this against my master and against my God. He ran away. Moses, in the the biography of Hebrews chapter 11, says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of this world for a very short time. In Romans 6, Paul tells us of the need to mortify, to put to death our sin, not to live in it, not to delight in it, not to affirm that in others, but to say this is contrary to God's law. I need to put it to death. As John Owen, the English Puritan, wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, the incredible thing about this is, is as we struggle with putting off these passions, these covetous desires, it's not merely trying harder. The answer is not found within me. But in the words of verse 6, it is the incredible turning point. It says, but he gives more grace. It is not about us. It is about God giving us more and more of his grace, of his unmerited favor. And one of the things about the church that's incredible is the intergenerational character of the church so that we can learn from others around us, older and younger. The church, by design, is intergenerational. If you ask anyone who has grown in their faith over the years, something might go like this. They used to think that temptations and struggles and desires and passions were because God was tempting me or Satan was tempting me or the world around me or my flesh. And then we get to that point where we go, it's me, it's my flesh. As James will say here, these desires that come out. You see, submission to his grace, though, produces growth. And if you talk to that same Christian of how they have known that it is themselves that is the problem, they will say that the answer is God gives grace again and again and again. See, when we submit to God, when we put to death these covetous desires of worldly wisdom, even when we don't feel like it, when we put them to death, we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And James mentions this in verse 5 when he says that the Holy Spirit is jealous for his people. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has put within us. We can resist the remaining unspiritual desires and worldly temptations and the bouts with the devil who prowls around looking for somebody to devour. Again, back to 1 Peter chapter 5. We live the righteous life that God requires because it is God's grace in our lives. The more that we see God's grace, the more that our eyes are drawn off of the things that we used to say, I've got to have this. I've got to be right in this area. I've got to have this or else my life is not complete. Grace turns our eyes from those things and turns them to the will of God. In the words of the hymn that we will sing as a response to this sermon, the chorus says this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, these desires, these passions that wage within us, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Cling to grace. So my question to you and to me is, what are we holding on to 
that this world system holds so dear, but in the light of the grace of Christ, is really not that important at all. Are we clinging to the grace of the Father, freely poured out in Jesus Christ, as we are sealed by the Holy Spirit? And notice the last verses, the things that are valued by the wisdom from above, that we are to cleanse our hands, that we have been cleansed by Christ, that cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not calling us to live dour lives, to uh, sell our houses and move to Montana and do nothing fun for the rest of our lives. What it's saying is that the wisdom from above has a different agenda. The wisdom from above values different things than the wisdom from below. It values things like humility. It values things such as turning away from our double-mindedness, which James has already challenged us with in chapter 1. To see this world for what it really is. To turn our attention from ourselves and to have a sober, from-above view of life. An outlook that does not have to be entertained all the time, but looks outward to others and how we can help others and pray for others. And ultimately looks upward to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as James has taught us to put off fighting, put on submission, put off covetous desires, to cling to grace, to put on grace, third and finally, we are called to put off pride and delight in and put on humility. Look at James chapter 4, verses 6 and 10. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in a statement that acts like an exclamation mark on this section in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Think about this way. As we are called to put off pride, pride never has a good ending. Think about the world of classics in literature that you were forced to read in high school that you had no idea why you were reading them. But, for example, the ancient Greeks, pride is always seen as a detriment. It is never good for the noble hero. They never succeed. The Greek plays tells us the tales of the tragic hero who is consumed with hubris and overbearing arrogance and proud attitude. And this is repeated often in Scripture. Takes it up and says, this is why the Greek tragedies and other novels have said it, because it is so scriptural. Again, back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter is addressing the under-shepherds of the church, the elders, he reminds them, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, in the Bible, there is no story where the proud character succeeds. There is no admiration of proud teaching because it is impossible for anything, any thought, action, ideology, to be pleasing to God of the Bible as it exalts itself over against the triune God and his purposes. Pride is the epitome of godlessness. This is how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 10, verse 4. He describes the, pr- the proud wisdom from below in these terms. In the pride of his anger, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. To live a godless existence. Another way that this last phrase, there is no God, can be translated is, God will not call to account. Since there's no God, I can do whatever I want. I can give in to my passions however I want. 
Well, the Bible, the, the wisdom from above, calls us to challenge this. One more practical consideration as we live this out. In this post-COVID world, with the attitudes of us and those around us, there is great need for godly, humble, grace-filled, submissive followers of Christ. It seems as if, it, as if in many quarters, even in churches, inhibition and, and, and civility has faded so that now people just feel so emboldened to speak what is on their minds or ignore authority and set one's own course. One of the ways that I'm reading a book this summer, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's interesting how these researchers have said one of the problems with today's dialogue in the midst of these conversations, in the midst of these arguments and strife is this, is that some people have gotten into the attitude that there are only good versus evil people in the world. And these non-Christian authors are saying that is so destructive And what we would say as Christians is that there are redeemed and those who are offered redemption to live in this new reality. Think of how radically different we would be as Christians if we were the salt and light as we deal with each other here in these walls at 17th and Spruce Streets. With the words of Paul and his encouragement to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, this is how he puts it. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Again, consider what Jesus has done for us his people so that we can live like this. He has fought and defeated sin. He has defeated the world system of futility and the devil. He submitted to the Father's will and humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. He did not use his own glory for his own self-satisfaction, but he came near to us. And in the words of Isaiah, that we will celebrate momentarily. He was crushed, he was bruised, he was battered that we will remember in the table before us so that we may be made members of his family, which he invites us into this new life by faith. Martin Luther famously put it this way, that the Christian is simultaneously righteous and yet still a sinner, but righteous as he is still a sinner. This is what Reformed theology has taught since the early days of rediscovering the heart of the gospel, of faith alone, by Christ alone. My sins are forgiven. His righteousness is now imputed or given to my account. And while you and I struggle with this battle for which wisdom, which operating system we will live out each moment of every day, the hope is is that there is coming a day when those who have put their faith their full confidence in Jesus, will be raised in perfect righteousness and holiness. The operating system will be wiped clean once and for all, and the redeemed of God will be saved to sin no more. Do you believe this? If so, then live like you do. Let's pray. Father, would you give us strength as we cling to your grace, as we follow you in every area of life, in this, our brief and uncertain pilgrimage, 
until that day when we stand once and for all, complete in your righteousness, for your glory alone. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.